Luke chapter 6. Now, in another message, we've been here before. I don't know if it was this passage, but it was one of the gospel accounts. Um, We focused on the man with the withered hand. And just very quickly, I want to rehearse some of the principles that we that we learn from his narrative, because I think it's important to be reminded of this. This man with the withered hand, some things to remember. Number one, God is interested in meeting our needs at all levels. Admittedly, this man's problem wasn't life or death. It was important, but it's not the same thing, really, even as somebody who's blind. If I've got a choice between losing my eyesight and losing the use of one of my hands, I'd probably choose losing the use. It's not preferable, but I think I'd rather that than be blind or deaf. But he's healed people with leprosy. He's healed people with the palsy. He's healed people. He, he's brought people back from the dead. So, so this is not maybe as high on the list of issues. This man's hand had atrophy due to paralysis. We don't know if it was congenital or an injury or what it was, but it was his right hand, and that if he falls in line with these statistics, his right hand was probably his dominant hand. And so, you know, it's a problem. It's a problem, but it's not quite the same as somebody who's on their deathbed. But I'm glad to tell you that your needs, no matter how they may compare to the apparent needs of others, matter to God. You say, well, I don't have it as bad as that guy over there. Well, that's great, and thank the Lord for that. But you should still talk to the Lord about everything you need. Because God's interested in all of it. God's interested, God's interested in when we are having to say goodbye to a loved one that's about to cross over into glory. God's interested in that. But can I tell you, he's also interested when your little boy, your little girl, their pet animal dies. He's interested in that. He, he's interested when we've got a major job situation that threatens our livelihood. But he's also interested in, man, I don't know how this particular bill is going to get paid. See? So whatever you got going on, take it to him. He cares. It matters to him. Another thing, doing right places us in a better position for getting the help we need. Now, what do I mean by that? In verse number six, this man with the withered hand was exactly where a Jewish man was supposed to be on that day. He was in the synagogue. Now, I'm not saying that you've got to be completely right with God to get help from him, but it sure does help to be where you ought to be. You hear what I'm saying? It helps to be where you ought to be. He was in the synagogue, exactly where he was supposed to be, and one wonders, had he been absent from that rightful place, could that have hindered him getting the help that he needed? And when we're not where we should be, not even necessarily physically, but when we're not where we should be spiritually, if we're not where we should be in the matter of following God and the disciplines of our, 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 our spirit, are we putting ourselves out of position to be helped of him? Number three, according to verse number eight, God often expects us to do what we can in route to him, in route to him doing what he does. Now, what do I mean by that? Long before he healed the man, what did he tell him in verse number eight? He said, rise up and stand forth in the midst. Now, that's something he could do. There were some things he couldn't do, but what he could do is get up and stand in the middle of everybody. Now, what would have happened if he'd have been disobedient in that? Well, Lord, I'd rather not be in front of everybody. Well, fine, then I'm not going to help you. And sometimes God gives us things that he does empower us to do, and because we won't do it, okay, well, then I'm not going to take you to the next level either. Number four, ultimately, 
At some point, God's going to expect us to attempt the one thing we can't do. Verse number 10, looking round about upon them all, he said unto the man, stretch forth thy hand. His hand was withered. His hand was withered. What's the one thing he can't do? Now, let's, let's get technical here. Let's get persnickety, shall we? It didn't say stretch forth thine arm. It said stretch forth thine hand. Jesus asks him to do the one thing he can't do. Does he do that to us? You better believe it. Are we capable of winning souls? No. But what's he want us to be? Soul winners. Are we capable of being like him? Not in ourselves, no. But what does he call us to be? Be ye holy, for I am holy. So what's this man got in front of him? Okay, the Lord's asked me to do something that I can't do, but if he's told me to do it, I've got to be obedient. And just that initial act of obedience, and then Jesus takes over. Well, that's what he expects of us. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Do you think there's anything in me that can pastor this church? Not a thing. Not a thing. So why do I keep showing up? Because God kept said keep showing up. And I'll do the work. You just be obedient. And that's, that's true for all of us. So just some things to remember from the last time we looked at this story. Now, we like that positive message, don't we? We like that narrative. But I tell you who we don't like. We don't like the Pharisees, do we? We don't like the Pharisees. In fact, we don't like their attitude, and it would be very easy for us to read this account, and others like it, and we would see the Pharisees as what? The bad guys. Real easy to see them as the bad guys. Jesus is the good guy, and the Pharisees are the bad guys. And let me tell you what's not easy. What's not easy is to take an honest look at the attitudes and actions of these Pharisees and see where they intersect with our own. We like to think we're more like the good guy than the bad guy, but let's be honest. If we're not careful, we're more like the bad guy than the good guy. Now, that's not fun. We don't like seeing where these things intersect. The Pharisees were the conservative party of of Jewish society. They were zealous guardians of what they thought was the letter and spirit of the law. But their main problem was that they got so consumed with their authority, with their influence, with their traditions, with their social station, that they couldn't see the plain capital T truth that was right in front of them. Now, we all, whether you want to admit it or not, whether I want to admit it or not, we all have moments of a pharisaical spirit. We all have those moments. They're fleeting usually, hopefully, but it's incumbent upon us that we deal with those moments immediately, that we take care of them. Because if we fail to deal with those fleeting moments, what starts as a spiritual lapse will soon become a spiritual lifestyle. So may God help us to use his word today to assess our own hearts that we might detect and make quick work of the Pharisee within. The Pharisee 
within. Father, would you help me now as I preach? May I rightly divide your word of truth. And as I proclaim your truth, may I do it with a spirit that is not even remotely pharisaical. And Lord, may I live in such a way that's not pharisaical. Would you help us today, we pray. May Christ be lifted up, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. I got three questions. Three questions that we have to ask ourselves, and if we, if we have to answer these questions in the affirmative, well, that's not quite right. If we see these questions and say, yeah, that's me, let's put it that way, then we've got some work to do. I'm not saying you're not saved, friend. I'm not saying you don't love the Lord. I'm saying what, is, what starts out as, you know, a leaning, what starts out as a lapse can soon become a lifestyle if we're not careful. All right. I, I've been watching this. I'm not going to get into it, you know, a whole lot, but social media is a great place for the Pharisees to come out of the woodwork. Isn't it amazing all the theological experts we have out there in cyberland on any side of an issue? Isn't it wonderful? Can I ask you a question? Do you think anybody's ever changed their mind over somebody's rant? You know what? They were completely unscriptural and and very, very unkind, but I think they're right. Never happened. Never happened. What a waste of time. And I've been guilty of wasting my time like that too. Mm. Let me ask you three questions. Now remember, lest I be called a Pharisee, I've had to ask myself these three questions too. You understand, in, prep, in preparing messages, I'm not sitting there going, man, I'm going to get them good. Oh, yeah, this is, this is going to hit Brother Hensley square between the eyes. No, I'm not doing that. More often than not, you know what it is? Man, alive, Andy, you, you, you shouldn't even preach this. You ain't living this. And yes, I know I said ain't, and I meant to. There's a difference between you aren't and you ain't. Number one, are you motivated by knowing truth or just being right? Now let's, 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 let's look at that for a second. Are you motivated by knowing truth or just being right? Those of us that are married, when you have a discussion, as you call it, to your, say to your children, when you have a discussion, what, what are you after? Are you after getting to the truth or are you after being right? There have been many times that I've gotten into an argument and realized real quick that I was outside of the truth. But I kept arguing because I at least wanted to be right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And all that does is make my later penance all the deeper. And there is a big difference between knowing truth and being right. Or at least as you perceive. Because let me remind you, just because you think you're right doesn't mean you are right. Yeah. Right? Correct? You know? There's a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof is the ways of death. Look at verse 7. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day that they might find an accusation against him. These Pharisees weren't interested in who Jesus was, only how it affected their bottom line. You see, they craved the authority and the approval of man, and this rabbi from Nazareth threatened all of that. 
Now, they're using something here. In my research for this, I ran across this term. I've heard it before, but I've never noticed that it works so beautifully here. They're using something called confirmation bias. Have you ever heard that term? It's a sociological term, confirmation bias. Does anybody know what that is? I don't blame you. I wouldn't waste my time on it either. But basically, confirmation bias is taking evidence that clearly goes against your position and warping it to make it fit your preferred narrative. Can I give an example? The media. That's really all I need to say. The media. But have you noticed that the majority of the media tries to take traditional Christian values and say that it is the root of all the problems in this nation? That we are the ones that are espousing hate. We are the ones that are, you know, that are causing all the problems. But when you look at the data, the data that they have grossly misrepresented, you find it's exactly the opposite. So what have they done? They've, they've committed confirmation bias. I'm going to be right, and I'm going to manipulate the, the facts whatever way I have to to show that I'm right. So these guys, these Pharisees, are so bent on being right that they warp the clear teaching of the law to fit their own tradition-laden narrative. What do I mean by that? They are setting this guy up, hoping that Jesus will heal him so they can use a misrepresentation of the law and say that Jesus violated it and completely undermine his ministry. Now, here's the thing they haven't figured out. Jesus knows the law far better than them because he's the one that wrote it. They're more interested in being perceived as right than being in line with God's truth. Now, here's the question we've got to ask ourselves. Are you, am I willing to submit to truth even when it presents an inconvenience to our tradition? Well, preacher, I know what you're saying is right. It's true from the Word of God, but, man, we've always done it this way. And listen, we've always done it this way is fine until it stops letting us acknowledge truth. And when it stops allowing us to acknowledge truth, then we've always done it this way has to go away. We don't like what Jesus is bringing to this paradigm. We had things all figured out, and we were, we were making money hand over fist, and we were having people talk about us and, and admire our phylacteries and our prayers in the, in the streets and everything, and now he's messing all that up, so we've got to make sure that our right overcomes his truth. And can I tell you something, friend? There's Christians all over the place that try to manipulate the very word of God that it might fit their right instead of its truth. Jesus said in Matthew 15, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, but in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Number two, you just don't know how hard I'm fighting against using an example. 
I'm still trying to figure out if the Holy Spirit's telling me no or if I'm just scared. When in doubt, don't, right? Second question. First one is, are you motivated by knowing truth or just being right? Second question, are you using God's word for construction or destruction? Look at verse 9. Then said Jesus unto them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? His question is the converse of their assertion. They're saying that if you heal this man on the Sabbath, you have violated the law, and thus you are a blasphemer, and you are not worthy of anybody's following, and and your ministry is illegitimate, and frankly, you need to be killed. And so Jesus offers a question that's the exact opposite. Now, was there a prohibition on physicians opening their practice on the Sabbath? In general practice, there was. Physicians in that economy, needed a day off just like everybody else did. But there was a a universally accepted, or almost universally accepted agreement that in the case of a life-threatening situation, a physician could, could administer treatment. Because the Sabbath was made for the man, not man for the Sabbath. And we don't want to be crazy about this thing. Now, Now, that said, they were already being crazy about this thing. See, the problem wasn't the law. The problem was the Jewish traditions, the rabbinical traditions that came around it. Traditions like, well, if you're, if, you're a, uh, if you're a writer by trade, if you're a scribe by trade, you can only have this much ink in your inkwell on the Sabbath if you walk anywhere. Do you really think for a second God cares how much ink is in your inkwell? He did not. That was man-made. That was man-made. And if, and if you look, if you look at, at, at the writings that took place Outside of the law, you find that it became bloated and, and completely impossible to follow because it was, it was geared towards man's traditions and whatever the, rim of that, the whim of that prevailing rabbi was in that day. And the biggest problem with it is they took their traditions and they elevated them to the same level as God's word. Now, I'm glad we don't do that today. But Jesus points out that God's heart is to help, not harm. Now, let's, let's make sure we understand our words here. I didn't say he never hurts. Does God hurt sometimes? Yeah. But hurting is not the same thing as harming. How many of us had parents that believed in hurting you? Well, preacher. Mine did. Their goal was to hurt me but not to harm me. Now, I'll be honest with you, at times they, they failed in that goal. More mom than dad. You get mom fired up. I've told you, my dad was pretty deliberate. Dad used a belt or he used a switch. So I was careful not to offend him outdoors. Mom grabbed whatever was handy. You dare not offend her in the kitchen because there are deadly things handy in the kitchen. But generally, it wasn't they wanted to harm me. They wanted to help me, but sometimes that involved hurt. By the way, this generation could learn a little bit about that. You ever like me? You ever go to Walmart and see some kid? You don't feel bad for the kid. You feel bad for the parent. You're like, the parents want to mess this up. I could help this kid. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Would you like me to help your kid? I won't harm them. I got to remember this thing goes online. I'll be calling the CLA here shortly. But here's what Jesus does. He wants to drive this point home, so here's what he does. He goes beyond the life-threatening thing, and he goes to heal somebody that it's not life-threatening. Could this man have lived another day with a withered hand? Sure, he could have. But Jesus is going to prove a point. What's the point he's going to prove? We see it in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5. Now that we are... now. Andy, please learn how to read. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Now watch this. Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. These jokers were all about the letter, not just of the word, but of their traditions, and they gave no thought to the spirit. What's the spirit, the overall spirit of God? Is it one of help or is it one of harm? It's help. And Jesus points this out. Now, in absence of clear doctrinal teaching, we must assume the Bible to be tending towards life and grace and mercy and things like that. Let me explain what I just said. Obviously, if the Bible teaches this is wrong, this is what you do about it, this, if the Bible teaches something that concretely, we follow that. But in areas that it doesn't, we just assume that God's will towards us is one of peace and mercy and love and joy. But what do we tend to do as fundamentalists sometimes? The Bible is silent about a matter, so we just assume God's mad about it. And we rather take it the other direction and make it severe and harsh and, and, and punitive. Fear of lost you. Let me try to give you another example. Sometimes we look for ways to interpret the Bible that it might be used to impose our desires on others. Rather than reading the Bible for what it says or doesn't say, we decide, well, this doesn't resonate with me. I don't like this, so I'm going to find a proof text. Let me give you an example. A further example, an example within an example. Now, this is not true. This is, this is meant to be illustrative. This is not true. But let's say as a southerner, and I am, you understand there's different types of southerners. I pastored in the deep south in Alabama. It's a different type of southern than I grew up in. Down there, they're still fighting. About what? Everything. I, being born in northern Virginia, am a much more aristocratic southerner. I am much, see, they're like Yosemite Sam. But I, I am like Foghorn Leghorn. I I say, I say, come here, boy. As a southerner, if I was true to my heritage, then I hate me some Yankees. I don't. Well, I kind of don't. I hate, the New, I hate the New York Yankees. As an Orioles fan, I hate the New York Yankees as an organization, but I don't hate Yankees. 
I want to be very clear about that. I don't hate Yankees, but let's pretend I did. And so I look for a way to use the Bible to prop up that stupidity. And so I go to digging, and oh, look what I find in Isaiah 43, verse number 6, and I'll say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. God's for the south, amen. Now, we, we kind of giggle at that and say, what? that's just dumb. But for how many years have Christians in this country tried to use the Bible to prop up racism? We're different cultures. We come from different backgrounds. We're raised different ways, and I get that. But don't you ever forget that Jesus died for every soul of every skin color to ever walk this planet. We had an unfortunate and terrible time in our country in which we had people use the Bible to justify slavery. And now now it's no better that the liberals are trying to use the Bible to justify all these movements that have popped up here lately. This one matters and that one matters. Can I tell you, everybody matters. If Jesus died for everybody, then everybody matters. Are we using God's word for construction or destruction? These guys, these guys in the synagogue were trying to use what they thought was God's word, but really it was just their tradition as a way to destroy Jesus. They tried to use it as a weapon. You know what's interesting? Whenever the word of God is called a weapon, as best I can find, the only time that it's used as a weapon is against Satan, against Satan's forces, and then against myself. I don't find much in scriptures where we use the Bible as a weapon against others. Let me give it to you. You ready? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against who? The wiles of the devil. And those that work for him, these principalities and powers. And it goes on to say, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. When you look through Revelation and see all the uses of Christ and his word, he is going against Satan and Satan's people. But how many times are we seeing people pull out the word of God and use it as a sword against other Christians? God never intended that. Oh, there's another time it's called a sword. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of my soul and spirit. That's what it's talking about. My soul and spirit. And of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The question we have to ask ourselves are we, using the God, are we using God's word for construction or destruction? Are you, are you interpreting and applying the Bible as it's written, or is it a weapon that you try to use to control others? If so, that's a Pharisee within you. Am I motivated by knowing truth or being right? Am I using God's word for construction or destruction? Here's the third question. Forget that last question. I took it out. 
Are you quick to repent when you're corrected? This may be the one that hits us the most. When we're corrected, we have a natural tendency to get defensive, don't we? Anybody that's ever coached a sport, you want the coach to say, great job. What you don't want the coach to say is, what is wrong with you? As I've been helping with the girls, I'm now a consultant, a high-priced consultant. We hired another coach on. She makes twice as much as I do. And I'm now a consultant. But in my time when I was, when I was in the second chair, I've never been in the first chair. My wife has always been in charge. But when I was in the second chair, I learned real quick that the way I used to coach boys and the way I coach girls are two different things. I've told you about the one time that one of our young men, good young man, love him dearly. He didn't play well the first half. So I asked him on the way to the locker room. I just lovingly pulled him aside and I said, let me ask you a question. And I called him Nancy. I said, Nancy, are you wanting to play basketball tonight or do you want to go ahead and get on the girls' team? I made him so mad he scored 30 points second half. Now, he was mad at me for three days, but he scored 30 points. I'll take that trade every day of the week. Now, you try doing that with a girl and, you know, it's no good. And then not only do I have the repercussions on the team, I get home, my wife's like, what is wrong with you? But when a coach corrects a player, assuming that coach knows what they're talking about, the best thing for a player to do is say, yes, coach, and work on it. That's the best thing to do. And yet, what's our tendency? To get defensive. And so when the word of God, and by the way, we tend to put this on the preacher or the Sunday school teacher or the school teacher, but when the word of God clearly says something and it offends us and it hurts us and we go into defensive mode when we should say, oh God, you're right, I'm sorry, fix me. So what do we see here? He healed this man's hand, this man's hand who was withered, who was, who was atrophied, who had no use whatsoever. And before their eyes, they see this man's hand restored, albeit on the Sabbath. What they should have said, what they should have said is, man, we're wrong. This is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. What were we thinking? But instead, what does it say about them in verse 11? They were mad. The word mad there literally means out of their minds. And they started looking for ways to do away with Jesus. Rather than change themselves, they wanted to change him. Uh Uh-oh. What does that mean for us? How many times have we come across something in God's word that speaks to us plainly and confronts us with clear error in our lives and rather than our first instinct being to repent and come in line with God, we try to align God with us. Andy, I'll tell you, you're on the wrong side of history on this gay marriage thing. I am? Yeah. Don't you know that Jesus never spoke against homosexuality? 
never spoke against child abuse either. You for that? Wait a minute. What about the millstone around? He's not talking exclusively about children there. But are you okay with child abuse? Just because Jesus and the Gospels didn't cover something doesn't mean, number one, that he didn't ever say anything about it. And number two, it doesn't mean that he's okay with it. But I would submit to you that in defining marriage as a man and a woman, he did say something about it. See, Jesus doesn't have to speak against something. All he has to do is speak for something, and we align with that. You're on the wrong side of history. And don't you know that in Sodom and Gomorrah, God, God, didn't, God didn't judge them because of immorality. He judged them because of their pride. Now that is a mighty creative extrapolation of Scripture. And it happens to be completely false. Now, it goes back to one of our previous points. Why are we falling behind the culture in this? Why are we not making more of an impact? Because we decided to justify our hatred of these folks with Scripture rather than loving them and giving them the gospel and trying to help them. I've seen videos of preachers throwing homosexuals out of their church. They didn't do anything. They were there. No, you get out of here, you sodomite. You're, and, all, and they called him all kinds of stuff and everything. But here's what I know. Paul told the Corinthians, he listed out a bunch of sins and included that one. And you know what he said? And such were some of you. But now you're washed. I, I got news for you, friends. We can't see people come, become saved if we don't give them the gospel. These people, when they saw Jesus do what he did and saw him as he was, they should have repented and got themselves corrected, but they didn't. But the reality of it is there's all kinds of Christians that you're confronted with clear error from the word of God, and rather than repent, we try to change God and make him what we want him to be so we don't have to change. I find myself in the middle of this thing. My, my, my more, for lack of a better way to put it, my more robustly conservative brethren want to be against everything. And my more, um, my more gracious libertarians want to be for everything. I just want to be where God is, y'all. I just want to be where God is on the thing. And if God doesn't deal with it, if God doesn't speak to it in precept or principle, I have no right to get into it. You know, but if he does, I have a responsibility to stand for it or against it. And when I look in God's word and I see my own problems, I need to repent and get it corrected. What do you say in Malachi 3? For I'm the Lord, I change not. Well, so what? What do I take from this, Andy? Well, the truth is, it may be, it may be that by God's grace, go ahead and pack up, close your Bibles, zip up your Bibles, button up, get out the gum, the cough drop, whatever you need to do. Text, text your loved ones, say you're on your way, put the, put the oven on, whatever you got to do. I learned that little trick in college because when you're in a room of 6,000 people and everybody starts packing up at the same time, it's just thunderous. And, and in conclusion, you know, and it's just, 
So what does this mean for me? It may be that by God's grace, you're really endeavoring with his help to just just to be a good, balanced Christian, and the Pharisee isn't really that strong in you right now. Praise the Lord. But understand this, it can pop up at any time. At any time. And any time I elevate my tradition or my desires above the clear teaching of the Word of God, then that's what I've done. I've let the Pharisee pop up, and that doesn't help anybody. There's enough clear teaching in the Bible that we need to stand for and against. We don't have to make stuff up. You know? Brother Davies will tell you, every rule that's in the handbook, we have to look at that thing and we have to say, is this the spirit or the letter? You know? Or maybe this is something you're struggling with. I don't like this and I'm against that. Okay. What's the Bible say? Or what's the Bible not say? Because ultimately, we're not looking to be good Virginians, good Appalachians, good Southwest Virginians, good Withcountians, wherever you may live. We're looking to be good Christians. We're looking to be good students of the Word of God. And if we allow anything that we want to get ahead of that, we are at worst idolaters, and we are at best Pharisees. And the world doesn't need more Pharisees. Right now, there's supposedly a revival that's broke out at Asbury College. I know very little about it. I've seen some video of it. I don't know these people's hearts. I don't. The videos that I've seen, if I'm honest with you, I don't necessarily like all the songs they're singing. And you know what? Some of them are in there, and they're dressed in ways different than I would to come to church. I've seen a boy in shorts. And if I'm not careful, I can discredit that thing and say, well, this isn't of God. I mean, look at all the foolishness that's going on there. Or maybe, just maybe... God is moving on people where they are and doing a work in their lives. And the best thing I can do is just sit back and say, if Christ be preached therein, do I rejoice. And if people are getting saved, I'm for. People ask me about the Burlington Revival and the Bristol Revival and the, you know, Ivanhoe Revival and every other revival's been around here. What do you think of that, preacher? Here's what I know. I don't know C.T. Townsend personally. Here's what I know. I know if the Bible's being preached and the gospel's being proclaimed and the Lord Jesus is being lifted up, then I'm for it. I'll let the Lord sort out the little details of it. I don't necessarily have to be in the middle of it. I don't necessarily have to give my ringing endorsement to it, but I am not going to be a Pharisee. I'm not going to jump in it and get in the middle of it. Because sometimes when you do that, you impede things, and God's not pleased with that either. Can you believe Granite doesn't wear uniforms anymore? Well, the Lord's doing work at Granite, so we're going to leave it alone. You know? 
When the world looks at us, what they need to see is they need to see authentic, Bible-based, loving Christianity. Well, Andy, I'm not a Pharisee. Maybe not. But we've got to be so careful because it's so easy for it to creep in. And then before we know it, there's a Pharisee within.